Welcome back guys to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I'm your host, as usual, Adam MacDonald. And in today's episode, I have on with me Chris Barakat. I got to meet Chris multiple times this year in the US. I got to meet him in July and also at the Worlds in New York. Chris is a really, really nice guy. He's also a scientist down at the University of Tampa and a fellow competitive natural bodybuilder. In today's episode, we talk about the new book that he released alongside Jeff Nippard, which is a book all about body recomposition, the ultimate body recomposition guide. And basically what that means is gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time or improving your overall body composition, so specifically for aesthetics. So in this episode, we go through all the different tactics that is explained in the book. and We cover off nutrition, sleep, diet, exercise, and some of the findings that Chris has found in his lab where he does research. It was a really enjoyable episode for myself uh, to learn about, and I definitely had some key takeaways from this, so hopefully you do enjoy it. And if you do like the episode, please do leave a rating and review. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Chris Barakat. So Chris, my man, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And for anybody who doesn't know who Chris Barakat is, uh, give a quick introduction to yourself, your work, your background, and um, and what you do. Sure, man. Um, so yeah, you know, I guess I'll start off by saying um, I primarily am involved with bodybuilding through my through coaching, um, but I kind of have my feet in a lot of different waters. So um, I teach at the University of Tampa. Um, I teach nutritional supplements. I've taught general nutrition classes in the past, as well as exercise science. Um, I graduated from here at the University of Tampa with my master's in exercise and nutritional sciences, and um, I primarily teach, to, to be quite honest, so I can continue researching. Um, so I'm pretty passionate about researching topics all related to bodybuilding here in the Human Performance Lab. So um, it's definitely a win-win for me. And yeah, I coach full-time. Um, I've been competing since 2011. So um, I was someone who didn't even know natural bodybuilding existed until 2010. So I, I walked into one of my um, my undergraduate bio classes, and there was this kid who was pretty jacked and started talking to him, obviously went to the gym. And he's like, yeah, I'm like two weeks out from a, a natural bodybuilding show. I was like, oh, what's that? And he's like, you know, they polygraph you. You get, like, urine tested. I was like, oh, that's super cool because I was already training, like, five days per week at the time anyway. And I, and I loved the lifestyle. I just didn't know that there was a, a natural route to, to compete, and I needed to scratch a competitive itch. So anyway, he became, like, one of my best friends, lifetime friends, and um, I got involved in the sport at a young age at 19, competed then, um, competed in 2013. I believe I was 21. I uh, won like an open lightweight class and lost the overall. Um, I was very young and immature and uh, thought I was, you know, I was like chasing a pro card at 21. It was absolute nonsense. Um, and then I came back in 2017 after graduating and, and competed at the uh, INBF Hercules and the Muscle Mayhem in California. So, uh, yeah, man, I, that's basically what I do. I coach, I teach, I research, and uh, absolutely love this, love this game. That's awesome, man. And you, the, one of the classes that you teach is nutritional supplements. Is that just a, a class based off of like sports supplements? Uh, it's not sports supplement focused. So the undergraduate one that I teach, um, 
is an elective course. Fortunately, I was basically able to design the course as I wanted. So essentially, the first two to three weeks are going over actual just general nutrition to make sure the students have a good foundation there before diving into supplements. Um, then I talk about like industry rules and regulations. And the way I break up the course is actually um, by going over different body systems. So like we'll cover cardiovascular health, digestive health, cognitive function, um, insulin sensitivity and diabetes. And then towards the end of the semester, we do sports performance and stuff like that. So um, I basically break up the semester based on like health category, so to speak. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty awesome subject. I'd love to be, uh, be able to take that. Um, and it's pretty cool the way you can design your own your your own class or at least the structure of it. Yeah, yeah, I was very very fortunate and grateful for that. Uh, when I I taught a general nutrition course here, and the university wanted me to use like the textbook that all the teachers used, um, and I absolutely hated it. Um, I would literally like pull up stuff from the book and like use the strike through option on the PowerPoint presentation, just like completely erase it because a lot of the information was outdated and stuff. But yeah, the, you know, the fact that I had the ability to kind of create my own course was definitely something I, I really enjoyed and I think gives the students a better, uh, just a better experience overall. Yeah, that, that is really cool, man. And recently you released a book with Jeff Nippard called The Ultimate Guide to Body Recomposition. And today I wanted to talk to you about pretty much that. So uh, without going too in-depth right, right now into the book, can you explain to us or give your um, definition of what body recomposition is for those who don't know? Sure. So typically speaking, body recomp is when you are gaining lean body mass, primarily muscle mass, and losing fat mass simultaneously. Um, that is the most standard definition of it, and that would be you know, definitely like true body recomposition. Um, another kind of caveat to body recomp or another way I would view body recomp is when you're lean gaining and you're gaining more lean body mass than you are fat mass or you're not gaining any fat mass. So your body fat percent is going down um, and your lean mass is going up. Even though you're not actually losing fat mass, I would still consider that recomp absolutely. Um, and then the last version is, you know, depends how you want to view it, but it's almost like having an extremely successful cut where you're retaining all of your muscle tissue while losing just pure fat mass, you know, like doing a really, really good job cutting. Um, but traditionally speaking, it's just gaining muscle and losing fat simultaneously. Yeah, and the, the second um, example that you gave there is something that really kind of, I suppose, a light bulb went off my head when I first realized that a couple of years ago or, or whenever it was, is that the percentage of your body fat that you have goes down if you maintain that body fat but increase your weight because body fat is obviously a percentage of the overall weight so if you maintain the same amount of body fat but your absolute weight goes up then you're essentially recomping absolutely um, and you look way more aesthetic you know because you're gaining muscle and not gaining fat so you, you definitely look better yeah so with those scenarios that you've given uh, what kind of person can best achieve those? Or is this something that everybody can achieve? Because it sounds like the ultimate goal, right? Everybody, when they, uh, whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, you're pretty much everybody wants to get 
a little bit leaner and a little bit bigger depending on like how lean you are or how big you are but well i don't think anybody doesn't want to get bigger but i think that's the goal right just to improve your body composition basically so to speak so get as big as possible get as lean as possible simultaneously not have to bulk not have to cut so it sounds like you've unlocked the key (laughs) to success so what kind of person can achieve this or is it someone that's new to training is it somebody that's using anabolic steroids is somebody that is coming back from a layoff could you explain a little bit about that yeah for sure so you know i I definitely do want to say that there are absolutely phases where we recommend being in surpluses and deficits. It's just how you're approaching it is going to definitely change, and I'll cover that kind of as we go along. But um, in regards to who this is you know, practical for, it almost is everybody um, except those that have been you know, crossing their T's and dotting their I's and already doing everything that they should and and they have plenty of training experience but I'll kind of start with with the beginners and then kind of go over different scenarios over time Um, those that are new to weight training definitely have the greatest potential a to build muscle right because it's a novice it's a it's a novel stimulus and um, they're so far away from their their max genetic potential that they're going to gain muscle at the fastest rate. So um, one thing that I highly encourage and and something that I see people make a mistake on is if someone is, you know, just moderate, they have like an average percent of body fat. So let's say, you know, an average percent for male is like actually 18 to 20%. And then uh, average body fat percentage for females, you know, generally our age is around 30 to 32%. The first thing a lot of new trainees do is jump into a calorie deficit because they want to lose fat, right? And that might uh, maximize their fat loss capabilities, but it's actually going to hinder their muscle building potential, and it's actually going to decrease their overall body composition. So a lot of times when a novice trainee just gets into lifting, Highly recommend that they eat at maintenance or a surplus unless they're extremely obese and overweight because they will build muscle and lose fat simultaneously if they have a good nutritional program in place as well as a good resistance training stimulus kind of providing that that drive and, and creating those adaptations that we're seeking. Yeah, so I mean when a beginner... Uh when a beginner starts lifting and starts eating well coming from like let's say a back background of not lifting at all and not probably in the most cases just the main thing is probably just not eating enough protein they just get results almost from doing anything so like you i think regardless whether they're in a surplus or a deficit they'll still get results but like you mentioned to maximize the results they don't necessarily need to to lose fat or to be in a deficit like somebody who's more advanced would have to be yeah like I don't know, maybe you can go back to when you first started weight training, but I'll kind of use myself for an example. Um, Even though I did a lot of things wrong at first, I was gaining body weight, right? Just not nearly as fast as I should have. Um, And I would say that my body fat percent definitely stayed the same, if not went down a little bit. So I was gaining total body mass, I was gaining muscle mass, and I definitely was not gaining body fat, right? So, I mean, for me, I was like 135 pounds soaking wet. I I was a basketball player in high school, 
And when I went from like 135 to 150 in a relatively short period of time, um, you know, my body fat percent definitely didn't go up, even though I gained 15 pounds, it was relatively just like pure lean body mass, right? I don't know if you kind of had a similar experience. Yeah, I actually I actually played basketball a lot when I was younger as well, and I started lifting that way. I wasn't necessarily tracking my body weight because I started lifting like 16 years old or something like that, 15 maybe, and uh, it, my goal wasn't to kind of, it was to get bigger, but I wasn't like meticulously tracking my weight. I didn't know that much, so, uh, but my body, body fat definitely didn't go up, um, and I definitely, when I look at pictures, I think that's the period where I made the absolute biggest jump in progress. Um, I've made significant progress since then, but in in the time period, um, to ratio to you know, time ratio to progress ratio, I made the biggest in that. And I was only training, like I was playing basketball, like probably eight times a week, like some days multiple times, and training with weights like a frequency of once per week. Uh, only training three days a week, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and, and I made significant progress. But like, like I said, anything kind of works. Like with the, with the, um, you know, with the newbie, like I, I probably could have made a little bit better progress. But I just had the same program: push, pull, legs, or something like that. Some variation, three sets for three exercises for all muscle groups, and then just try to get stronger. And and no, no, like periodization or anything like that my only periodization was just add more weight to the bar yeah 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 and it worked it worked absolutely that's the thing so i, I wish it was still the case now but <laughs> i think uh, i gotta be a bit more meticulous and a bit more programmatic with the way i plan out my training but what are some of the other examples of uh, people who can uh, body recomposition I, I know for a fact that with people who use um exogenous hormones um, you see guys who like quote unquote grow into a show so basically losing body fat and building muscle like significantly where they can actually be the same weight or even slightly heavier but look way different on stage yeah yeah so obviously enhanced lifters um, their ability to recomp is going to be enhanced as well uh, muscle protein synthesis is elevated and um, that's pretty common on the other side of the sport especially for like the more novice level um novice amateur level enhanced competitors i in the elite stage i don't actually think that's happening i think they're just retaining basically as much muscle mass as possible while they're cutting because i think one problem that they make on that side of the sport just generally speaking you know not everybody but they lose a lot of body fat in a relatively short period of time um so I think that hinders their ability to, to truly recomp. And I, I, you know, from what I've seen from some case studies and from what I've seen in person, um, it looks like they just do a really good job of retaining and maintaining their lean mass, but not actually building tissue simultaneously. Um, so yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of how it is on the enhanced side. But one thing I wanted to mention is, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't think is possible is for this to happen in trained population, right? Um, there's actually a lot of literature on well-trained subjects, and that's how it's defined in the literature, um, where recomp is presented. There's multiple studies from just training studies, nutritional studies, as well as some supplemental studies. Um, now, how you define well-trained in the literature really varies from study to study. Sometimes it's they only have one year of resistance training experience. 
Sometimes they have a minimum of three years of resisting training experience. And in one study in particular, the average, the average uh, training age for each subject was actually like 8.9 years. So um, recomp has been demonstrated in the literature across a wide variety of population. And it's something I see every single semester with the subjects that come into the lab. So every semester we usually have um, one large study and then maybe one or two smaller studies going on. And we might have 30 subjects in one study. And uh, I see recomp happen with approximately, you know, 20% of our, of our population where they're gaining lean mass and losing fat simultaneously. And, and I just think people have this belief that it's literally impossible, but it's, it's just simply not. Yeah, so if we focus on, let's say, or, or we forget about the people who are um, coming back from a layoff or who are extremely obese or who um, are using exogenous hormones or who are brand new beginners, because I'm not going to say that nobody that's uh, in those categories is going to be listening to it, but I think the majority of people who listen to this will be we'll probably have at least one year of trained uh, or training experience so and maybe more so we could just say that if we focus on those who are trained um how would you go about this i'll, I'll exclude myself from this because i i probably feel that maybe i've been training maybe 10 years and, and maybe maybe i still could um benefit from this and i think to an extent you probably can but maybe the the less advanced you are the probably more you can benefit from uh, body recomposition would that be correct yeah absolutely absolutely um so if yeah go ahead yeah, yeah so what i would like to share is kind of what i've seen in the lab here with the particular studies we've ran um one thing i think that makes a huge difference in this setting is the training intensity that we're actually pushing these subjects to um a lot of people don't train or have never trained to like true muscle failure, like true concentric failure. And that's something that they'll be forced to do in the lab, um, depending on how we set up the study. And I think that that next level of training intensity is definitely one driving force for really um, driving this, this adaptation response, as well as improving their nutritional adherence um, compared to what they previously were doing. So, you know, I just see a lot of, you know, if you take the average gym goer, I'm not talking about the average competitor per se, but if you take the average gym goer, you see them do a set of like eight or 12, but you know that they had like four or five reps in the tank, but they just, they stopped the set because their program said, okay, do three sets of 10. So they just stopped that rep number 10, but they're not using appropriate yeah. load and working at the appropriate intensity. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in the gym uh, doing legs yesterday and uh, my program called for a, a leg hack squat, just three sets uh, with a one one rep short of failure, so not even to failure. And I and before that, I had done three sets of squats. So in total for quads, only only six sets. And by the, by the last set of my hack squats, and I took it to, you know, it wasn't to failure, but like genuinely could could only get one more if like somebody like put a gun to my head yeah, yeah. and my and, and I, I felt like i felt sick like like 
like puking for like 30 minutes afterwards couldn't eat yeah. had to lie down on the bed afterwards when i got home and today my legs are destroyed like literally really really sore and that was only six sets total and um and i see people on the hack squat like they're doing like 15 sets like yeah, when yeah. i'm waiting like if you like if you even got like five reps short of failure you wouldn't be able to do more than five sets yeah so i think that's important and i think i train in a commercial gym so it's it's kind of hard to i see frequently that people you know the intensity just low overall and um you know people they not that failure is all necessarily always the case or you need to go to failure like and you probably agree with me you don't need to go to failure in all your sets to get the maximal response but people they don't know what true failure is so they think oh i'm stopping two reps short of failure but like you said they're probably like stopping like six reps short of true failure and in the lab it's I guess it's easier when there's somebody telling you there you have to go almost like a personal trainer but you want to kind of show that you you can work hard so how would you actually how would you give advice to somebody that trains in say a gym where the the atmosphere isn't like a you know east coast mecca yeah, goals yeah. gym in venice how, how do you how would you give them advice to, to push yourself but but you know um but still in that environment that's not necessarily going to bring you up for because for me even I, I find it sometimes difficult to even push myself in an environment like that to true failure because when you're doing something like a hack squat for like 12 reps and one sh- one rep short of failure yeah, yeah it's it's not easy work no not at all yeah it's brutal um i think having a good training partner can be extremely beneficial obviously someone who's who actually has serious goals they're not just in the gym to kill time or you know be like not just to improve their health but because they actually really are trying to improve their physique to some magnitude um but i think it's something that you actually kind of need to learn over time and your intensity is something that you can't it's like a it's almost like a skill right like you're not going to expect someone on day one to perform an exercise first and foremost with great execution and really good form and then learn how to push that exercise to like true failure. Cause your mind is always going to tell you that it's done before you're actually physically incapable of, of doing it. Right. So, um, unfortunately, I don't know if I have like any advice, but you know, just getting really focused and, and kind of telling yourself that you're not going to let your mind determine when the set is over. And you're literally going to pay attention to when you're physically incapable of completing the movement. Um, I mean, that might be that might be a good tip, but I think a lot of people are losing focus and intensity throughout their training sessions. I think cell phones are a huge freaking distraction in the gym. Um, and yeah, just I, I think when you're in the gym, if you can build your your focus and your intensity from set to set, you're going to have a much better session rather than doing a set and then kind of getting distracted and like going on social media and then like doing another set and then getting distracted for another three minutes you know what i'm saying yeah i actually personally like to um to like i have this youtube premium so you can like watch videos when you close your phone Um, and i I watch like these i think it was like really old videos that i watched when i was like 18 19 like that that i think it's called zashni or something motivation Mm -hmm. it's like bodybuilding motivation (laughs) and it's so it's so like cringy i think about it like yeah yeah. i used to like watch that but it actually does help it's like really motivational music yeah like 
I don't know, you know Flex Wheeler or somebody speaking over it, yeah, like, yeah, pushing Sean Ray in the gym, and you know, and it, it actually does help when it just I listen to it just before my set. Like I don't walk around the gym listening to that, but yeah, yeah, just before my set, and it's like that's my like my virtual gym partner. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. I I used to I used to be obsessed with all the old school like train with Kai videos and, and the mm. Kai Green videos of him training, um, whether he's like doing the voiceover yeah, the, or whatever, but that stuff used to get me like super hyped. Yeah. He, I remember watching uh, the video where he, uh, he was like in his small apartment in New York and he had all the, the fire burners on in the cooker. Yeah. And he just, just so he would sweat balls. It's yeah. like, what the hell? What the, that guy's absolutely insane. Yeah. Like, it's just no bed. Like, I don't know what he thought would happen there. He'd sweat out of fat or something. Yeah. It's just nuts. He's just burning a hole in his, like, <laughs> in his wallet with the gas bill or whatever. Yeah. But it's pretty funny. Um, but I don't want to get too off topic. Um, to come back to the, the body recomposition, what, um, so if we had a, you said that you saw some of the results in your in your lab, but what specific results did you see? And then how would you begin to say set this up for somebody who's a trained lifter, like nutrition wise, training wise, supplement wise? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's been so many studies over the years. Uh, the first study I was ever a part of back in 2016, we saw recomp in probably six out of 19 individuals. Um, and yeah, like the, the, the largest gains I saw in that study, somebody gained like nine pounds of muscle while losing four pounds of fat in, in only a 10-week training period. So, I mean, that's pretty darn impressive. Um, another study that's currently being published, it was a, a volume study looking at 12 sets per week, 18 sets per week, and 24 sets per week of leg training. Um, one study gained... 20 pounds of lean body mass while losing two pounds of fat in a 10-week period and i mean it was absolutely absurd um now was he was he highly trained absolutely i wouldn't say he was highly trained he was a college basketball player so he fit the criteria where he's been lifting for three years he was able to meet the strength criteria where you have to squat a certain amount of your body weight i believe it was um I forget what our squat ratio was, to be honest, but it's obviously going to be published. But yeah, he fit all the criteria and he just absolutely blew up. So I've seen crazy things, but even when you look at the group means of this study coming out, all three groups, so everyone in the 12-set group, 18-set and 24-set group, there was body recomposition happening in all of those subjects. And this was the, the highest resistance trained or the strongest group of resistance trained individuals that I've ever seen in the scientific literature for a randomized control trial. So I'm really excited for this study to be published um, literally within the next month or two. So tell me, what is it that they did differently or how did they get these results in, in terms of the training, their nutrition, yeah. the life outside of the gym? Yeah, so I think a large thing is increasing training frequency. Um, a lot of the subjects come in here and they typically do bro splits. So when they enter the study, um, that particular study, they have to train legs in the lab two times per week. And for a lot of them, that was the first time they've ever trained legs, A, that frequently and B, with that intensity. Um, and then believe it or not, we had no control in regards to what they did for their upper body training. It was, it was just a lower body training study. Um, but we were still able to track their total body 
composition changes, you know, utilizing the DEXA. Um, and then a lot of them are also increasing their protein intake simultaneously. Um, in another study we did, it was training three times per week, and it was three full body sessions. And that was literally every subject's first time ever training each muscle group three times per week. But interestingly, that was also the least amount of total training they've ever done because they were used to lifting like five days per week, and they had to reduce their their total training from five days per week to three times per week. So um, it's quite interesting to see like what can potentially happen when you increase training frequency and you start, you know, getting that growth stimulus multiple times per week instead of once per week. I think that can definitely be one of the variables at play in regards to why we're seeing recomp in our subjects here. Yeah, I would definitely like to see more work on that total volume versus um, versus frequency. Um, I, 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 I can't remember who it was. Was it from Brad Schoenfield or James Krieger? But something on the topic of of volume and it seemed to be that um, when when looking at volume versus frequency it seemed that that overall volume was actually the driver of hypertrophy but yeah. it seems like the results that you had in your lab were that that wasn't necessarily the case so that's pretty interesting yeah it's interesting you know like that wasn't the purpose of our study and and we weren't monitoring these subjects beforehand but just knowing knowing them and knowing the splits that they were on I think one of the reasons why they're seeing such positive benefits in an eight to 10 week period might be because of the frequency. And then again, the, the underlying thing being the training intensity being really high in the lab setting. So was there any specific way that you set up frequency? Was it, was it two to three times per week or, or based off of what you learned in the lab? Was there any way that you would set up training now um, with volume, frequency and intensity to optimize um I suppose muscle muscle growth because right your training isn't going to make you lose fat, but yeah. um, what way to to optimize your hypertrophy? Yeah, it totally depends on your your training experience level. To be quite honest, um, and obviously how much time you have to commit to the gym. Um, for for like a complete beginner, I would probably recommend either three full body sessions per week, or even doing like um, twice per week frequency where you're doing a full body session an upper session and a lower session. And then as you get more advanced, obviously if you start adding training, um, more training days to your weekly, to your weekly mezzo, um, your frequency might stay the same, but you're going to be increasing volume per muscle group, right? So if you did like a, an upper lower push pull legs, you're still only hitting each muscle group twice per week, but you're hitting it with way more volume because those days just have more time essentially for you to hit each muscle group yeah so you you recommend that um you know at least twice a week would you have any upper limit that you think would be too much yeah generally speaking it's twice per week um some muscle groups i touch three times per week depending on the athletes it might be like something like lateral delts for like a lot of bodybuilders, um, even figure and men's physique competitors, it's super important. So sometimes they're touching lateral delts three times per week. Um, it also tends to have just a faster recovery response. Um, and then if somebody has like a really strong body part, they might only hit it once per week. And then if they have a weak body part, we might increase training frequency to three times per week if they're able to recover um, from you know session to session. Yeah, it's, it's it's almost identical to what I'm doing right now. Um, I have like a week 
um dells i mean they're they're not very capped or or wide if, if someone's trying to visualize it so i'm hitting those multiple times a week and they recover they can pretty much recover the, the next day if i do like keep the sets you know minimal enough but anything like my front dell my interior delts like that can be sore for days and then some of the uh, some of the stronger points like my chest or my my back um i'm not hitting as frequently just doing that once and almost just trying to maintain volume so that i can um improve on these other areas yeah yeah absolutely um so with regards to the nutrition then uh, what did you find in your lab and then what can you extrapolate that and um, i know you have a full book on this and i will leave that in the show notes and stuff so people can can check that out if they want it's like 130 pages or something like that explaining exactly what we're talking about here um in more detail but from and and I guess that book is being based off your your information that you've gathered from your experience over the years, your studies, and then also these specific studies that you've done. So some of that information has been extrapolated from these research studies, right? Yeah, for sure, man. A lot of it, most of it, comes from coaching experience, right? Um, we're using the the research literature to give us some general guidelines on what not to do and then what to consider trying. Um, and yeah, a lot of this comes honestly from coaching experience, what I've seen from my clients. So um, in, regards to, in, in regards to the nutrition, obviously protein is, is going to be probably the most important macronutrient to discuss. And there's kind of a, I don't, I don't want to say a debate, but there's, there's a pretty wide range in regards to how some people approach how much protein they're eating on a daily basis. Um, and we can definitely kind of talk about that in regards to what has been shown in the literature and then what I've seen with coaching and how, how I approach it. Um, I'd actually, I'm kind of curious to ask you, what do you currently do in regards to your protein intake and, and maybe what have you done in the past? Yeah, so in the past, um, I guess when I started like in the way past when I first started and I got my information from Muscular Development Magazine, I would always have like at least 1.5 grams per pound of body weight because that's what, uh, you know, Dennis Wolf did and he was like, you know, 300 pounds. But then I guess when I started to kind of get more into the scientific uh, side of things and the research, uh, I would always kind of aim for like one pound per per gram of body weight but now um after speaking with uh, juma iraqi um who recently did a paper with eric helms peter fishing and uh, sergio espinar on off-season recommendations for bodybuilders uh, he said that he had good um good experience with getting high, quite high protein post contest um with his clients purely for the satiety uh you know satiety um factor and i so i've been i haven't actually really been tracking but i know for sure that i've been eating um a lot more than one gram one gram per pound of body weight of protein um in the last like um month or so and i want to keep that actually quite higher so i'm going to probably um when i do start tracking again in, in january um i'm going to be aiming for about you know, 1.4 to 1.5 grams and I, I don't know if that's going to have any significant impact and i know there's there's a little bit of research on higher protein intakes but i know for sure that there's no negative impacts from it like yeah protein is going to cost maybe a little bit more if i'm getting it mostly from like meat and stuff but I, but what i know is that when i when i'm getting like fatter per se or putting on weight my my diet my 
my hunger isn't as high so i can get in more shakes which previously i wouldn't have been doing shakes because just purely for hunger i want to eat actual food so now my protein is actually pretty high and i, I plan to keep it there like more than one gram per pound maybe one like i said 1.4 1.5 for the next i don't know the next year or so or or just as long as i as i can to see if i can get any additional benefits from a higher protein diet yeah um no, that's that's awesome. I think the one gram per pound rule is is pretty bad advice um, because there's a lot of flaws to it. If a you're you're pretty you know overweight or obese, it's just completely excessive. And then b if you're relatively lean, um, I think it's hindering your ability to build muscle and and maximize the recovery process. So like let's just say like you're 165 pounds at, you know, 10 to 12% body fat. Um, I think you would be way better off eating closer to, you know, 200 grams of protein rather than 165 grams of protein, especially if you're training hard. And then on the other, on the other end, like if you're 250 pounds at, you know, 30% body fat or whatever, um, there's no reason for you to eat that much protein. Right. So if you look at the literature, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, are you familiar with the protein overfeeding studies by Antonio? No, I'm not actually. I haven't read those. Okay, so there was one in 2014 um, where they fed their subjects 4.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So what does that come out to? Literally, two, two, It's two, two grams. Yeah, it's two uh Two grams per pound. Yeah, so two grams per pound. And um, what they ended up finding with that study, the 2014 study, was um, the, the protein overfeeding group gained more lean body mass, and they actually lost fat mass at the same time, even though they were eating 800 more calories per day than the normal protein group. So it's, it's pretty crazy that they're eating that much more from a caloric standpoint but because it's all coming from protein they didn't gain any fat they actually lost some fat mass and then they gained more lean mass so i mean that was very very intriguing to me and then they did a follow-up study in 2015 where they gave their subjects 3.4 grams per kilogram and um, they also found that the group eating the high protein, they actually gained 1.5 grams, uh, sorry, 1.5 kilos of lean mass, which was the same as the normal protein group. So it didn't, it didn't increase their muscle building effect, but they lost 1.6 kilograms of fat mass instead of just 0.3 kilograms of fat mass. So they lost significantly more fat, even though they were eating approximately 490 calories more on a daily basis. Um, it was all coming from protein. So, you know, those studies were really intriguing. Um, and what I've seen with my clients, like I, there's some times where I have like 175, 180 pound bodybuilder eating up to 270 grams of protein in their off season. Um, just because I don't want to increase their fats and carbs any further. I don't, I don't see the purpose of it. They're you know, they might be already at 550 carbs a day and like 110 grams of fat. It's like if I just continue increasing their calories from those macronutrients, I know the likelihood of it being stored as fat is way greater compared to me just continuously driving their protein higher and higher. So I've had a lot of success with 
lean bulking people in their improvement season by really driving protein high, especially once they already have a sufficient amount of carbs and fat coming in. Like I, I definitely think that yeah, there's a limit that. to how many carbs. Yeah, you need. I think that just protein is um, protein conversion to energy is just such an inefficient mechanism through the gluconeogenesis that um, that I think that that's why we start to see some of those uh, different results in terms of uh, loss in body fat. Um, because if you had the same amount of calories, like 800 calories from carbohydrates, it's just, it's it's a lot easier to to you know. Uh, store that or convert triglycerides of fat from those so that's pretty pretty interesting so from from that what would your recommendations be for somebody is it is two grams what you recommend or is it slightly lower than that yeah so in our in our ebook we recommend 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass so that's that's even higher right it totally depends on your body fat percent and how much how much lean mass you have um we got a little bit of heat f- from that, um, from just like, you know, random internet trolls or people on YouTube or whatever, um, because Eric Helms's recommendation in one of his recent papers, it might have even been um, with that gentleman that you that you recently interviewed and you just mentioned um, in regards yeah, to like yeah, pro- Jim yeah, protein in the off season. Um, my understanding is Helms recommended 1.0 to 1.4 grams of uh, protein per per pound of lean body mass. So we're literally just like 0.2 grams higher in, in both directions. Um, and we got some heat from it. So what I ended up doing was I looked at the Antonio study in 2014 and 2015 that I just mentioned. And, you know, I told you that they did 4.4 grams per kilogram and they did 3.4 grams per kilogram of total body weight. And I looked up their... Uh, their study demographics and the the body composition of each group. And what I saw was that, you know, after like converting their body fat percent and taking their lean mass and doing all the calculations, um, the study that was consuming 3.4 grams per kilogram, it ended up being 1.9 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. So that's still way higher than our recommendation. And then Antonio's protein overfeeding study that did 4.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. When I did the math, it came out to approximately 2.39 grams per pound of lean body mass, which is insane, right? So um, Mm. on average, they were eating 257 grams of protein in the first study and up to 323 grams of protein in the second study. So it was... That, that 2014 study was a true protein overfeeding study. Um, and then the 2015 Antonio study was just a very high protein study. Because, you know, I have a lot of clients on that around that 250 grams per day range. That's not excessive to me. But the the value I got of 300 and 323 grams of protein per day is extremely high. So that's the most I've ever seen in the literature. But again, it only produced, you know, positive findings in regards to body comp. Yeah, that's very interesting. And is there any particular reason that you use lean body mass rather than total body mass? Because I think most of the research is actually based off of total body mass rather than actual lean body mass, probably because it's hard to actually track or get an accurate reading of uh, body fat. Yeah, absolutely. So most of the literature is just like gram per pound, like total body mass. Um, I like using lean body mass because it's way more practical, right? Like, um, 
whether you're a male or a female, or whether you're, again, 20% body fat or 10% body fat, I think it's, it, it's way more important um, to actually prescribe the recommendation based on lean body mass. So that's why we utilize it. Yeah, I, I get you. And, and then with regards to carbohydrates and fats, are there any particular, particular um, ratios or immense that you use? And I guess that will make up the overall calories, which you can touch on as well, whether it's a slight deficit or slight surplus. But for those, is it kind of uh, free will just to make up the calories or do you have specific recommendations? Yeah, if, you, if you're really trying to optimize everything, um, I, I do take a couple of different approaches. So just generally speaking, if you are on the higher end of um, body fat percentages, I typically recommend a higher fat, lower carb approach. And then the leaner you are and the less body fat you have, I typically recommend a lower fat, higher carb approach just because you're going to be able to utilize those carbohydrates more efficiently the leaner and leaner you are. Um, and the, the guidelines that we utilize is, you know, fats are never going below 20% of your total calorie intake. And they're also never going above 35% of your total calorie intake. Um, so we kind of talk about that in, in detail in the book. Um, it's kind of hard to just like paint. I, we use so many different examples in the book. So like we'll say like, okay, you're a novice trainee and you're lean. Or you're a intermediate trainee and you have X amount of body fat. Or you're an advanced trainee and you have X amount of body fat. And you're male and female. So, I mean, context is so important. Um, I hate just throwing out these like black and white guidelines. So... I tried to really cover so many different scenarios and I feel like Jeff and I really tried to make sure that it, it kind of encompassed everything, you know? Yeah. And in general, would you recommend a, a slight surplus or is there a slight deficit or does it really depend on the, the what the person, uh, you know, the, the, the level of their body composition currently? Yeah, it, it totally depends. It totally depends. Um, we can, if you want to like, use a specific context yeah so so let's say somebody who's like lifting for a couple of years and they're maybe they feel like maybe they've got a little bit of excess fat they're maybe 20 percent body fat or something and they want to get a bit leaner but they also want to get bigger and they let's say they have up to five days to train mm -hmm. yeah so if, if they're a male and they've been doing this for a few years and they're at 20 percent body fat um i would basically guarantee a, a, a calorie deficit. Now, the magnitude of, of how large that calorie deficit, um, it, it doesn't have to be too expensive, or like too extensive. I would never really go um, more than that, that 500, 500 calories below maintenance, um, like nothing too aggressive. But yeah, if you're at 20% for a male, you're basically going to be guaranteed, uh, I would recommend going into a calorie deficit. Um, but again, keeping protein high, making sure that your training stimulus is where it needs to be. Um, you're training at least close to failure if you're not touching failure every once in a while. And obviously you're, you're progressing in the gym. So um, that would be one scenario. Now, on, on the other hand, let's say you're like 10 to 12% body fat. Um, I would probably recommend going in a calorie surplus. Again, driving protein intake to minimize fat gain, if not potentially lose fat while you're actually gaining weight. And then obviously those those training stimuli still need to be in the picture to actually drive the adaptations 
Oh yeah, awesome. So, do you think that there's there's a percentage of body fat where maybe you're too low, where this isn't going to happen? So I, I feel like perhaps post contest, just due to the some of the research that I've read um, by Rossow at all, uh, based off how much your hormones are are suppressed and just the amount of muscle that you've lost. Do you think that in post contest, like it's 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 very unlikely that you're going to be like body recomping right yeah absolutely and and you know that shouldn't be the goal anyway right like if if you got in contest shape and like you had triad of glutes the first thing you want to do is probably regain body fat so you can sit on the toilet and, and not not have pain right um <laughs> but yeah if you got super lean the the goal is going to be regaining some body fat getting to a healthy level where your hormones are actually in a good spot but then from there once you kind of get to there's a few things you can do. You can potentially want to to maintain your body weight at a lower set point, right? That's that's an option yeah. for some because a lot of people um, might not really like where their where their their normal set point or previous set point was. I think post contest, if you do a good job reversing, you can potentially like decrease um, the body fat percent at where you're you're hormonally happy and where that set point is for you. Um, and then once you get there, it's going to be about maximizing muscle growth, not not losing fat and building muscle. But again, doing a really good job of lean bulking where you're primarily adding muscle tissue and you're minimizing fat gain. Um, but your, abs- your goal should be to get hormonally healthy, get to a, a, a normal body weight, a healthier body weight, and, and regain some fat. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And- with regards to supplementation, do you think that there's anything specific that you've done, or it seems like the main thing right now is the training intensity and the um, and, and driving protein intake up? With, is there any specific supplements that you recommend uh, for up, for optimizing body composition? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I actually wanted to make a post on this. Um, again, it's not nearly as important, but when protein intake's going high, obviously protein supplementation like a high quality whey protein is going to be the best bang for your buck anyway when you look at like gram per dollar right like for you to get a 40 gram serving of protein like whey protein is always the the most cost effective way um yeah and then obviously general creatine recommendations are always great um for performance size and strength and then um, one thing I, I just posted the other day was I started utilizing a, a GDA glucose disposal agent um, with my pre-workout meal, and I'm going to continue using it as I'm massing. Um, this is literally like I don't think that this is going to move the needle, so I don't want people like dropping crazy amount of money on a GDA and think it's going to be a miracle pill. But if you are someone who is currently massing total calories are high, total carb intake is high, and you're starting to get some kind of negative feedback after eating these large meals or these large carbohydrate boluses where you're getting sleepy after the meal, um, or maybe you're in the gym and you're no longer getting pumps like you used to, and you're, you're just starting to realize you may not be as insulin sensitive, um, potentially utilizing a good glucose disposal agent with some key ingredients in there like uh, berberine hydrochloride is probably one of the, the strongest natural GDAs um, that you can utilize. So I think that's one tool um, that can be used. And it's actually a supplement that I don't see being necessary at all during contest prep. But I see a lot of um, coaches or competitors like 
utilizing it while they're cutting and while they're already extremely lean and and uh, already very insulin sensitive. I don't see the point of it, but I see it being more beneficial while you're massing and, and body fat percents a bit higher. Awesome. And, and with regards to, uh, I know in the book that you, you recommend specific um, food choices and you actually touch on glycemic index and insulin a little bit, which often people who think about science will think that, oh, they're not important at all. So why do you focus on those things and, and is there specific foods and I know you talk about with uh, specific foods with higher in leucine as well. So if you could touch on some of the reasons that you choose certain foods as well, that would be uh, very helpful. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like some of the some of the recommendations that we make in the book, we'll take like pre-workout meals, for example. Um, generally speaking, I recommend utilizing a lower glycemic carbohydrate um, as well as pairing your primary carbohydrate source with a fruit. So we like utilizing multiple transportable carbs. So let's just say you had a, a sweet potato, right? Like a low glycemic carb, like a sweet potato. Um, that complex starch is going to primarily break down into glucose, right? Um, that polysaccharide is going to get broken down, broken down. But if you combined a fruit with it, let's just say you have an apple on the side or whatever it may be, raisins, whatever it may be, you're now providing your body with some fructose, and these different carbohydrates actually use different uh, protein transporters to transport those carbs. And it makes the digestive process a bit more efficient. Um, it's probably going to reduce the likelihood of you feeling bloated. And by using the low glycemic carb, the, the most important thing is that you're not going to have a large spike in blood glucose and a large spike in, in insulin. And therefore, you're not also going to have a crash in blood glucose, and it's going to decrease the likelihood of you going hypoglycemic while you're training. So um, you basically have more stable blood glucose and more stable energy levels throughout your training session. So can you know, is this going to directly impact body composition by itself? No, right? Like, 40 grams of carbs from a, a sweet potato and 40 grams of carbs from a white potato are exactly the same. But um, in the gym, if you have better energy and you're able to sustain that energy for a longer period of time, it might actually improve your gym performance. So now if you're you know, training with higher volumes, training with higher intensities, that can actually drive further adaptation. So this is where you start like looking at all the fine details and how it can really add up over time. Like when you really look at the big picture, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it makes total sense. I think one of the examples you gave in the book or, or Jeff gave in the book was that he was eating, I say higher glycemic carbohydrates where the, the absolute amount of uh, carbohydrates was, you know, the same or it's not, it wasn't significant in that sense, but because he had uh, such a high, uh, such a high glycemic index and a little amount of fiber and fats that he would his energy would almost crash halfway through even though he wasn't in a deficit sure yeah absolutely and, and there's ways you can you know potentially combat it obviously my first recommendation would be having a better pre-workout meal but then you can also utilize stuff like intra-workout carbohydrates right like if you if you know that you're dipping mid mid-workout and you feel like you're crashing and your blood glucose levels are going low and you're not able to perform well, you know, you can obviously get some Gatorade in you or, or some sort of quick acting carb source to kind of pick you up. But 
um, you would also want to prevent that, right? Like you don't want that happening. So if you really are crossing your T's and dotting your I's, these are some of the strategies to really optimize things a bit further. So with regards to the specific food types, you probably think that it's it's more important than just hitting your overall macronutrients and focusing on a quality of food and also perhaps um, sustained energy, at least around the workout, as well as um, you know the micronutrient-dense rich foods. But what about things like uh, meal timing? Do you think that protein timing is important, whether that's peri-workout nutrition or just uh, spacing it out throughout the day? I do, man. I... <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit bro in some ways, but I I genuinely think that there is a difference between, let's just say you're consuming 200 grams of protein per day. I think there's a big difference if you're doing that in three very, very large meals versus five to six um, slightly smaller feedings, but still um, significant feedings that you're still maximizing the muscle protein synthetic response of each meal. Um, I do think it would likely be a bit better um, to, you know, get five to six feedings of protein per day instead of three. Um, so I'm not really a huge fan of intermittent fasting for reasons like that. Um, there was one study that we mentioned in the ebook where they actually compared um, the same macros, the same calories, and they did three meals per day versus six meals per day. And the group eating six meals per day at the same exact macros um, retained more lean body mass while cutting and they lost more fat mass while cutting. So uh, the total weight loss was very similar, but the group that was doing it with less meal frequency um, actually lost more lean mass and lost less fat mass. So it's like the absolute last thing that we would want while we're cutting, right? So I think there are, are clues out there in the literature that point in, in this direction, kind of supporting what the bros and the bodybuilders have been doing for, for a long time. And um, a couple months back, I went to uh, the University of South Florida, which is right up the road here from the University of Tampa, where Dr. Bill Campbell's at. And uh, he had Dr. Andy Gallup in there. And uh, one thing that he said that stuck with me is, bro science is only bro science until we prove it right. And he, he feels like all of these things that uh, a lot of people kind of crack on actually end up getting proven right and, and not necessarily end up proven wrong. So I, I think if there's there's actually really good logic behind it, um, it doesn't have to get completely thrown out the window, you know. Um, even things like the, the post-workout window, a lot, of, a lot of people make fun of that. Oh, you don't need to slam your whey protein shake immediately post-workout. Um, but at the same time, it's probably better that you you get your protein feeding in, you know, within a 30 to 60 minute w window rather than waiting three or five hours post-workout, right? Like, um, is it something that you need to stress about? No, but is it something that might actually optimize what you're doing? I would say probably yes, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of small things like that that I think add up over the long haul. Yeah, I think even with the, all the, you know, the pre and post workout uh, papers and research, the um, although there's like it's not significantly different and the variance crosses zero, um, so that means so meaning they're not significant. They they do all lean or most of them lean towards you know better uh, advantage 
um, with a you know a post-workout meal, uh, you know within a, a significant uh, or within a short period of time. Yeah. So I think that, like you said, it's not like going to you know change change the you know the results significantly yeah. but if you're trying to get that extra couple of percentage points and and it's not something that's going to cause you a, a massive amount of stress it's probably not a bad idea yeah, yeah. um to to do that but with outside or sorry outside of uh training nutrition and uh, supplements is there anything that you recommend and on the book you touched about touched on things like sleep and how that's a bit of an unsung hero can you talk a bit about you know optimizing that to and why that's important to maximize uh, your body recomposition goals yeah the research on sleep is is pretty interesting and um, I wasn't super familiar with it until I started working on this project with Jeff Jeff brought a lot of this stuff to my attention I was unaware a lot of, of a lot of the, the sleep research um, but yeah it's pretty crazy just to see what a couple of hours of sleep reduction can can do in regards to uh, hindering your ability to to maximize fat loss and and uh, basically puts you in a really bad situation to retain uh, lean body mass while you're cutting. So a lot of the sleep studies show that those that are getting poor quality sleep as well as poor quantity sleep, um, they end up losing a lot more lean mass while cutting and they end up losing less fat mass compared to their counterparts that have improved sleep quality and quantity. So um Personally, I, I'm someone who actually struggles with sleep myself. Um, I can make some, some suggestions and, and, and general recommendations, but something that uh, I actually need to work on personally. Um, you know, I think having a night routine is really important. Trying to sleep at the same time every day, like having the same sleep and wake time and getting into a routine is really important for that. So uh, not only are you aiming to get like eight hours per night, but getting the same eight hours, you know, so from like 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. every day instead of, you know, maybe one day midnight to 8 and then one day 10 to 6 and kind of going all over the place. Um, I think stuff like that's important. And I, th- I think a lot of people already kind of touched on these strategies like wearing the blue light blockers or minimizing blue light, um, you know, avoiding technology before bed and all of those kinds of things. I don't know if you have any specific questions, but, you know, feel free. Yeah, I think just, you know, maximizing your sleep hygiene, like you said, the uh, making sure that your circadian rhythm is is on point by trying to get up and go to bed at the same time. But I think the the thing is with sleep is that it's not it's not sexy. It's not something that you can actively go and do or buy or take to try and get these extra results. Like, you know, people love to hear, well, I take this extra supplement or or do this extra amount of sets per workout or this extra 10C, something they can actively do rather than saying like, I'll just go to bed earlier and and sleep more. I mean, you know, it's not really, it's not really exciting. So, um, but it's probably going to have the the biggest bang for its book. Like I even know myself that I don't necessarily get as much sleep as I, as I should, because I, I often wake up at like quarter past five in the morning so I can train in the morning or else. And I'll go to bed kind of late or whether I'm doing like, some client work or making sure that i get a paper in for for college yeah. or, or whatever or even sometimes just watching like i think i'm watching a making a murder it's probably old uh-huh. but i only started it <laughs> I, I don't never watch series but when i the reason i don't is because when i do i watch like every episode in, in like the space of three days so 
yeah so even even i know myself that you I should be getting at least eight probably good hours of sleep yeah. but it's it's difficult to do because it's it's uh, it's not that exciting but for sure I, uh, yeah one th- it's always moved yeah ahead. one thing i i totally forgot to mention um probably because i have such a negative perception of it is um i really tried cranking down and 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 getting data on my sleep so i invested in that aura ring are you familiar with mm-hmm. that? I am, yeah. yeah, so it tracks HRV, it tracks like sleep quality, you know, how much REM you're getting, how much deep sleep, how much light sleep you're getting. Um, and I used it for about at least two months, not every single night, but, you know, I tried using it as much as possible for two months. And I have completely stopped using it because it actually increased my my stress and my perception around sleep i was getting so it was it was basically providing me with the objective data that i was getting shit sleep which i already knew because i wasn't feeling well and i i knew i was waking up in the middle of the night or i knew i wasn't getting deep sleep but i realized like i was basically getting like anywhere from like 45 minutes to an hour and 20 minutes of rem a night and i would never hit anything close to the two hour mark and i was just so frustrated that like I'm getting minimal REM and I'm just getting really poor sleep quality. And it just became like actually like an additional stressor. Um, It kind of becomes one of those things where like if you're really good at intuitive eating and like you've been tracking for years, you know, you don't necessarily have to track your macros to the gram anymore because you already kind of put that work in and like you already have that skill set where sometimes like collecting that data is just like an additional stressor. This freaking aura ring was stressing me out, dude. Like, I, I just, I stopped using it. I'm like, screw this. You know, maybe I'll use it, like, once or twice a month now just to see if I'm, like, improving at all. But it's something that actually, like, pissed me off and stressed me out more. So I, I figured I should share that. Um, I know a lot of people use the Whoop or a lot of these different, like, sleep trackers. Um, if it's giving you, like, more stress going into bed, and you're kind of like nervous about the results or whatever it may be, you're probably better off just doing without it. Yeah, that's an interesting finding. And it's kind of like when someone's trying really hard to get to sleep and then they can't sleep mm-hmm. because they're trying so hard that all they're doing is thinking about getting to sleep. Yeah. It's like you kind of just have to like not try and then it'll eventually happen. Yeah. And uh, I actually, I, I bought a Fitbit. Um, I had been using it for like my steps for my whole prep and then mine broke and I just like two weeks before I competed in, in November and then, I got a new one, which is like a much better uh, sleep tracker, and I haven't quite figured out h- how to kind of use it. Like I know how to actually use the the product, but how to use the data because like I know what I should be doing, and I try to maximize that all the time. So it's not like, all right, I slept six hours, so you know what am I going to do today? I'm not going to do anything differently than I did yesterday, mm. or if I stayed up till one a.m., I got up at five. You know, yeah, yeah. I don't need it. I don't need my Fitbit to tell exactly. me that I'm tired that day. Uh, so it's, it's I, I guess like it, maybe if you're trying like different supplements or something like that, um, or you're trying to like play around with your, your perhaps your meal timing or size of meals or macronutrient before bed, yeah. maybe to see if that affects your sleep or, or if you're trying like a new wind down routine or something like that, perhaps you can then tr- maybe try and quantify or objectify the results of that. But I think like you said, pr- tracking your sleep probably isn't that um, useful. I, I do see a lot of people doing it and sharing the results, yeah. but like 
but to what end i mean what what does that even mean it's just well, okay you slept like you slept well that that's good yeah, yeah. Um, but you didn't need you didn't need to you know your fitbit to tell you that um but chris thank you so much for coming on but before before i let you go what would be the biggest takeaways then uh in terms of body recomposition let's say the people aren't let's say a trained lifter probably isn't already doing what do you think the the biggest things that they could implement some of the things that i learned from you today was perhaps increasing your protein intake is probably one of the biggest things um but what are some of the other things that you would recommend that people could maybe take away from this podcast sure so i would you know honestly say self-audit what you're currently doing um take a step back take a look at your training program make sure that your training program is actually designed around your goals and you're utilizing exercises and a, a frequency and a split that makes sense for your goals and your needs, not necessarily that mirrors what a lot of other people in the industry are doing. Um, I think that's one thing that, that happens with the social media ages. Like everyone just kind of copies like their favorite, whatever you want to call it, like influencer, bodybuilder, whatever. So make sure what you're doing actually aligns with your goals. Um, I just hopped on, a, on another podcast on Monday and we spoke about like people um, performing exercises that aren't giving them a good bang for their buck and don't have a good stimulus to fatigue ratio just because other people are doing it. So like, you know, audit your training program, make sure that it actually makes sense for your goals and your physique needs. Um, and then also, you know, look in the mirror and, and truly question, are you training hard enough? You know, can you train harder? Are you doing everything you can from a nutritional uh, perspective to maximize your performance in the gym and maximize your recovery? So that's what a lot of the book um, dives deep into is it's not necessarily that, okay, by having a better pre-workout meal, you're now going to magically burn fat and build muscle. But it's about, okay, by, by optimizing your pre-workout nutrition, you're going to have a better training session. And week by week, day by day, that's going to add up, right? And then by having a better post-workout meal, you're going to improve your recovery so you can train harder the next session. And then um, besides pre and post-workout, by, by optimizing your entire nutritional approach, um, you know, potentially increasing protein, maybe increasing meal frequency, whatever it may be, um, you're now able to kind of train better, recover better, and then drive these body composition changes um that would that would basically be some of the, the key takeaways thanks so much for sharing man so where can we find more about yourself and your work and and i'll leave the book then in the show notes as well but where can we find more about your work yeah um so just recently in october i i kind of like relaunched or, or rebranded came out with a new brand called school of gains so that's uh, gains with a Z because it's more anabolic. Um, yeah, so School of Gains is where you can find a lot of like free articles, like blog articles, videos, um, all of the podcasts that I do kind of eventually, like they get posted on there, like the iTunes link or whatever gets posted on there, um, as well as like my training programs, my eBooks, and all the research I'm doing in the lab too. Um, whatever has already been published, I kind of like link the articles on there as well as kind of give you guys a heads up on what research projects i'm currently working on and like what's to come um, so definitely check out schoolofgains.com and then for coaching purposes um, 
especially for competitors, all of that is under competitivebreed.com. Um, and yeah, on Instagram, it's just my name, man. It's at Christopher.Barricat. And if you guys wanted to email me directly, you can do it through the site or you can just email Chris at competitivebreed.com. Awesome, man. And when do we expect to see you back on the stage, on that bodybuilding stage? Man, I am, I want to make 2021 happen. I want to make it happen. Um, I should just say I'm going to make it happen, right? But the goal is 2021. Um, The only thing that would inhibit me from doing 2021 is if I feel like I just genuinely didn't make enough progress and I'm not going to look significantly different than my previous competition season in 2017. So if, if I have a really good 2020, which is what I am, you know, set out to do right now, um, I want to step on stage specifically in September of 2021, because the first time I ever competed was September of 2011. So it'd be really cool to, to have like a little decade celebration and, uh, see what 10 years of competitive bodybuilding kind of looks like, even though I had a, a terrible 2019 from a, a training progression perspective. But hopefully you can use your own book to take your own yes. information and apply it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I have to. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank man. you, Adam. I appreciate it. So, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode with myself and Chris. Hopefully you took some informative away from this episode and you can apply that to your own training and nutrition. I personally have found that I did recount my own body about a year to 18 months ago before I started my last contest prep. I pretty much held 195 to 200 pounds in around there for about a year to 18 months. And by the end of those 18 months, my body looked completely different. And I wasn't actively trying to recount my body. I just didn't want to bulk because I didn't want to get too much heavier. And I didn't want to cut because I was my training was good. I was feeling good. And by the end of it, I did look different now not significantly different and I think if you're one of those people who we talked about like somebody who's new to training or perhaps overweight or is perhaps coming back from a layoff from training you're going to maximize the ability to recomp your body composition and I think that those who really want to maximize muscle gain probably want to go through periods of bulks you know with with slight surpluses and then periods of cuts but nothing too aggressive but I think though if your goal is to just maybe maintain a lean physique and perhaps build muscle but maybe a little bit slower rate this is definitely something that you can apply to yourself however like chris mentioned you really need to cross your t's and dot your i's if you want to optimize your body composition and simultaneously build muscle and burn body fat or build muscle with minimal body fat you really want to be maximizing everything in your uh, control like your sleep your training your nutrition even things like supplementation and meal timing and frequency so i hope you really enjoyed this conversation if you want to learn more about chris and reach out to him all of the links that we talked about um, with regards to Chris are in the show notes and you can always reach out to myself through my email address or you can get me on my Instagram send me a DM but without further ado I just want to say thank you for listening once again and please do leave a rating and review wherever you are listening to this uh, podcast so that's all for now and I will see you in the next episode <laughs>